0: Thank you, Bruce. Well, good evening, church. Good evening. I have to say that um, it feels nice being this close. It, it, it feels um, very special, warm, just seeing everybody close together and um, just looking forward to spending time together this evening. And I'd like to begin by sharing with you One of the modern conveniences that I particularly enjoy in this life. I love, 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 love Amazon. (laughs) Amazon is amazing. Amazon has to be one of mankind's greatest inventions. Right up there behind the wheel and the internal combustion engine. With Amazon, you simply one click, order things, and poof, they appear on your doorstep magically. <clears throat> and from the moment that you click order, the anticipation begins to build. You wait no more than a couple days. A couple days later, the UPS truck rolls up to your house. It's always very exciting. It could also be FedEx. The FedEx truck is equally exciting. But everybody wants to see the UPS guy show up on their doorstep. And then once they show up, it's like, mini-Christmas morning, you open that beige Amazon cardboard box, find a little treasure that was tucked neatly away inside just for you. I have never been so excited to get a new toothbrush. <laughs> so aside from the small joy of a package being delivered to your doorstep, the hassle-free shopping experience, the exceptional customer service, the competitive pricing, and the all-around convenience factor, Amazon has one additional outstanding benefit that completes the whole experience, product reviews. When I want to buy something, anything, I want to know what I'm getting. I don't want to have to navigate uh, a salesperson that that just wants to get the sale. Um, I don't want to try to be a person that's filling a quota. I just I, I don't want to even blindly make a purchase and, and just kind of hope that what I end up with is 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 what I expected. Um, Amazon's so great because, again, like in the example of a toothbrush, you just pull up Amazon, search for a toothbrush. All right, all these different toothbrushes. Scroll through. Oh, that one looks good. Okay, click on it. See the reviews. Oh, I ordered this toothbrush. Was really excited. It looked great. First time I used it, all the bristles fell off in my mouth. Well, definitely not going to order that one, right? <clears throat> so. Um, I think product reviews help guarantee that we're getting what we expected. And and that's something that I think is very helpful. You see, it is sad to say, but most of us will sympathize. Um, Most of us have probably at some point or another been the victims um, of false advertising. Uh, Something you purchased. Maybe you purchased a car. Maybe you purchased a computer or a toothbrush. Um, Worse, maybe you entered into a relationship of some kind and a critical piece of information about that person was withheld, or maybe even the more extreme end of the spectrum, you were lied to, right? And that relationship turned out to not be, or that person turned out to not be um, what was initially communicated or what you expected. We want the truth, don't we? We don't want a false bill of goods. We want full disclosure. And today, we're going to see that Jesus fully discloses what we are to expect When we follow him as his disciples. And so I want to begin with this with this principle. We'll call it a timeless truth. Jesus prepares us. Jesus prepares us. He prepares us to face the difficulties that would prevent us from persevering in our Father's plan of redemption. Now, before we dig into our passage tonight. Um, I just want to invest a few moments, like I usually do, um, at the outset and establish some context. Um, We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a while. The last time I spoke to you, we were in chapters 8 through 9, and Matthew um, was recounting Jesus' teaching on discipleship and performing miracles. And more recently, we've graduated to chapter 10 of Matthew. And, And in chapter 10, in this chapter, Matthew introduces the second of Jesus' long teachings. There's five of those sections in Matthew's gospel. And so, in in, in chapter 10, uh, Jesus begins unpacking, teaching His missions discourse. So, He's focusing on missions, on the worldwide mission, the plan of redemption. And so, at this point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus' mission is well-established. He's announced His message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. He's called His first disciples. He's articulated His standards of discipleship and His teaching, the first major discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. He's demonstrated His his own authoritative power as the God-man by performing miracles. Now it's time for Jesus at this point to expand His influence in ministry by sending out His disciples, okay? Sending them out first on a short-term mission. And so, last week we saw Jesus sending them out first to the people of Israel because the people of Israel um, enjoyed what we'd call salvation history primacy, that Jesus was sent to them first as as God's old covenant people. But we're going to see today that um, Jesus also prepares His disciples for an ongoing worldwide mission that spans from that time until our time that those first disciples were commissioned for and that we have also been called into. So, Jesus prepares them and us for an ongoing mission where the Gentiles, the non-Jewish, all the nations are included. And so, Jesus' training that we're going to see tonight unpacking and going on for the next couple weeks will address directly the characteristics that His disciples will need to embody as they carry out the ongoing mission to all the peoples of the earth. So that being said, I just want to invite you uh, to turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to read beginning at verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You will notice on your notes the title of my sermon this evening is Full Disclosure. My hope is today we will see that Jesus is not the doer of dishonest deals, that He's not the master of bait and switch. Jesus is our model of full disclosure. He tells us the truth even and especially when the truth is hard to hear. He tells us the truth because He loves us and because He wants us to be prepared for what is ahead of us as we follow Him and as we do His work in this life that He has given us. I think that if we're honest, we could agree that, generally speaking, Christianity has become very comfortable in the West. It's become very comfortable where we live. But Jesus does not, in Scripture, coax us to comfort. He calls us towards conflict. There's a cosmic conflict raging. There's a cosmic battle raging. There is a spiritual war raging. And Jesus' disciples are sent by Him to storm the spiritual beaches of Normandy and push the gospel forward in order to set His captives free. So, I want to ask you to turn your attention back to our passage starting with verse 16, and we're just going to begin to walk through it together this evening. The first word of verse 16 is, behold, behold. We're one word deep, and I'm already going to stop and start explaining, Um, but it's very important to stop on this word. It's very important to consider uh, this first word. Surprisingly, some of our English translations uh, don't They leave this word out. If you have an NIV, that that translation leaves this word out, Um, and the the word we're talking about that is rendered, behold, up on the screen is is the Greek word idou, think, I do, what a husband and wife say to each other on their wedding day, but then with a nice, endearing Canadian accent, okay? So, this Greek word idou, and this this is a very special word in the Greek that, that draws attention to what follows it. It is a prompter of attention. It's intended to arouse the intention of hearers or readers. Um, It's used to introduce something new or unusual. It's a marker of strong emphasis, and it's a call, especially in this context, for closer consideration and contemplation. Okay? So, this word in the broader context helps separate the short-term mission that Jesus sends His disciples on during His life in ministry, that first time that we looked at last week, from now the long-term, ongoing mission that He's going to begin to teach on from this point forward. But this word is also used by Jesus because what He's going to say is extremely important to disciples. It underscores the priority of His disciples understanding the perils that lie ahead if they follow Him. So, when the disciples heard this word, this one simple word, edu, behold, okay, something important is coming. And likewise, as disciples, followers of Jesus today, it's equally incumbent upon us to pay very, very close attention to the words that follow. Three more Greek words follow this attention grabber. Jesus says, edu, behold, behold. It I myself am sending you out. I myself am sending you out. And when Jesus says, I myself am sending, He's using the present tense, which has this continual aspect, this emphasizing the ongoing nature of the mission that He is sending them and us out on. Last time I spoke to you, I pointed out that when Jesus calls us to follow, when He says, follow me, be my disciple, that idea of following has this sense of of ongoing, lifelong, never-ending following. And likewise, when Jesus says, behold, I myself send you out, am sending you out, that sending out likewise has this ongoing, unceasing, never-ending, until we meet Him again, sense of continuation. These four simple Greek words reveal something essential to our identity as Christians, to who we are as present-day disciples of Jesus, just as they did to those original disciples 2,000 years ago. These four simple words of Jesus help define us, they help describe us, they help direct us, and they draw us to our first main point this evening, and that is, brothers and sisters, behold, we are a sent people. We are a sent people We might ask this question, what is Jesus sending us to do? He's sending us to do His work, to minister in His name, to call people to Him, to be emissaries, communicators, bringers of the gospel message, to bring hope to a dark and lost and broken world. We're talking about the message of being forgiven, having a transformed life, being reconciled to a loving God, but also a just God. And what greater purpose? if we really step back and contextualize our lives in God's plan, what greater purpose could we have than that? What greater purpose, sense of identity, could we have than being Jesus' sent ones? Back to verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep, he says. So what does Jesus send us out as? As sheep. He sends us out as sheep. Just a side note, this is literally the most buff sheep I could find. Um, I absolutely rummaged through Google Images for quite a few minutes, and in terms of toughness, I'm convinced that for a sheep, this is as tough as it gets. Um, And as we consider Jesus' words and check out that sheep, um, this is not comforting at first glance. Sheep are not known for their keen intellects, or for an intimidating presence. True, sheep can be cute and innocent, possibly cuddly, possibly. But let's be real. Uh, Sheep are otherwise dumb and defenseless. And if you don't believe me, take your phone out and play Angry Birds for 30 seconds. Um, The bottom line is this, sheep are vulnerable. That's the bottom line. The bottom line assessment is sheep are vulnerable. And if we just continue to read... Verse 16, the picture only gets grimmer, as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I'm no zoologist, so technically this assessment falls outside of my particular domain of expertise, but the last time I checked, wolves eat sheep. Wolves eat sheep all right, Jesus, so let's get this straight. Um, You're saying that you are sending me out as a vulnerable little sheep to this unending landscape of ferocious carnivores that specialize in feasting on me. Okay. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be prepared. Jesus wants his disciples, to be ready, to know what to expect, not to be caught off guard by the state of this present darkness. John says in his gospel, chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. This is the final assessment. This is the final word. This is the verdict. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The world is totally, categorically, completely opposed to Jesus, who is the light of the world. And Jesus is not some shady salesman. He's not spit-polishing a bad deal to turn a quick sale and earn some disciples. He's not offering an underhanded bait-and-switch. He comes right out and equips us with the cold, hard truth. Full disclosure… My disciples will face difficulty. My my disciples should expect conflict. Jesus doesn't doesn't call disciples and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, there is a sense in which that's very true. But there's also a sense in which that can be devastatingly misleading to many people. So, as we look at Jesus' opening words here, chapter 10, verse 16, Although his description seems grim, Jesus is actually helping his disciples. Jesus is actually helping us, because as he's communicating, he's giving us a model and a method. He's giving us a model so that we would have, so that his disciples would have a clear picture of the path that lies ahead of them, and he's giving them a method so that not only would they know, not only would they have a picture of the path that lies ahead of them, but they would also know how to navigate that path that lies ahead of them. So, Jesus gives us a model and He gives us a method. The model, of course, is that disciples, we ourselves, go out, are sent out, sent people and go out as sheep among wolves. And because of that, we must be alert and we must be aware. The method Jesus gives us is shrewd innocence. And and to unpack that method just a little bit, I want to call your attention back to verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, the word so means something. On the basis of what I've just said, I'm going to say something else. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So, on the basis of that, on the basis of the sending, on the basis of encountering, of of being sheep among wolves, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What is all this business about being wise as serpents and innocent as doves? First of all, serpents don't exactly have a good track record in the Bible. And if you don't believe me, just look at page three. And, like, you know, I was studying this passage and I thought, well, this is really fascinating. First, Jesus, you call me a sheep, and now you call me a serpent. What's up with that? what do we know about the serpent? Let's go back to chapter 3 of the Bible. What does Genesis chapter 3 say? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So, the most, this is when the serpent is introduced, so the most distinguishing or salient quality or property of the serpent, the thing that sets it apart was its craftiness. I want us to explore this idea of craftiness for a minute because it's very important to what Jesus says. And to help us in this regard, I just want to read you a quick quote from D.A. Carson, very, very, just a gift to the church today, um, from his book, The God Who Is There. Every Christian should read this book. So I'm going to read you a very quick quote. I'm asked for 30 seconds of radical focus. We are told, according to our English version, that the serpent was the most crafty of the wild animals that God had made. In many sectors of our English-speaking world, the word crafty suggests surreptitiousness, sneakiness, bad intent. Does it have such negative overtones to you? It certainly does to me. But the word that is used here in the Hebrew can be either positive or negative, depending upon the context. In many places, it is rendered something like prudence. For example, in Proverbs 12, 23, a prudent man keeps his knowledge to himself. Passage doesn't refer to a crafty man, a sneaky little guy who keeps his knowledge to himself. It conjures up, rather, someone who is wise and prudent. Or again, in Proverbs 14:18, it's interesting that this word shows a lot, up a lot in the wisdom literature of the Bible. Proverbs 14:18: "The prudent are crowned with knowledge. This does not mean that the crafty are crowned with knowledge. Similarly, in the first verse of Genesis 3, I suspect that what is being said is that the serpent. Satan was crowned with more prudence than all the other creatures. But in his rebelling, the prudence became craftiness. The very same virtue that was such a strength became twisted into a vice. So, in rebellion, the serpent's prudence becomes craftiness. That's key for us as we look at verse 16. When Jesus says, and usually in our Bibles, it appears wise or shrewd. When Jesus says, be wise or shrewd as serpents, the word that He is drawing upon the idea that He's drawing upon is the serpent's prudence, okay? So, Jesus is not drawing a negative comparison by invoking serpent imagery here. Instead, on the contrary, He's, he's, he's drawing a positive comparison. This is what Jesus is saying, um, to navigate the inevitable dangers of kingdom building work, Jesus decided, My disciples must be as least, at least as prudent, as the most prudent creature that was created. Does that make sense? But Jesus doesn't stop there. That wisdom, prudence, shrewdness must also be paired with this innocence that's exemplified by the image of a dove. And so, we could say that these these qualities are complementary. One of the seminary professors I had just man, the great opportunity to study under as an expert in the Gospel of Matthew. He wrote a commentary on the book, and he says in his commentary with respect to this statement, um, without innocence, the shrewdness of the snake is crafty, a devious menace. Without shrewdness, the innocence of a dove is naive, helpless, gullibility. Okay, So, so, so we need to be both shrewd, prudent, wise as we are sent out, but we must also be innocent. The Christian is to interact, you and I are to interact with outsiders with a a practical wisdom and a behavioral innocence so that the gospel goes out with divine power and not hindrance. If we're going to be persecuted, then the persecution must be unearned by our own foolish actions, right? The persecution should only come at the name of Jesus Christ, not because we're clumsy or foolish Or rude to people, so Jesus gives his first disciples and to us his present-day disciples not only a model of what to expect as we go out as sent ones, but also a method for going out so that we can navigate the dangerous journey that inevitably lies ahead of us if we are going to walk faithfully with Him for a lifetime. So we go out as sheep among wolves. We we conduct ourselves with a shrewd innocence. How do we combine these? His portrait of sheep among wolves was to impress upon disciples, missionaries, that they're vulnerable. We are vulnerable as we go out in His name, but the portrait of, of, of snakes is to teach us not to be stupidly vulnerable. And as a sent people, as we consider how to apply Jesus' words to our lives today, I think it's imperative for us to recognize that Jesus hasn't called us to comfort but instead He's commanded us towards that cosmic conflict. Every disciple, every sent one, is a missionary. Every disciple is a missionary, but not every missionary goes overseas. As we all go out of this place, out of this building, and out of this congregation, this assembly tonight, we all go out as a sent people, corporately, and as sent persons individually. How do we apply this to our lives? How do we, practically speaking, go out and and live out our identity as sent people? Well, I think that there's at least four steps, very basic steps that we can take. And the first step that we can take is we could take ownership. Do you understand what it means to own something, to really appropriate it, to internalize it? So, yes, exactly, it's yours, right? So, we can't claim the Savior but then deny the Savior's sending. To take ownership of being sent ones is is in some sense to make it a part of our identity, okay? Jesus has sent me. I am one of His sent ones. It defines who I am. I have appropriated that as in, in the very core of my being. I've taken ownership of the fact. This is a matter of fact. Jesus has sent me. I'm a sent one, and so I I own that. So, the first thing we could do is we could take ownership. And by the way, in our comfortable context, it's very easy to not take ownership of that. There have been stretches in my own Christian life where, if I'm honest, I, I wasn't really functioning with the identity of a sent one right in the foreground of my Of my experience. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's very easy to just kind of step past our identity as sent ones. But Jesus, behold, I am sending you out. It is important. It's a part of us. So we take ownership. Second thing we do is we could take stock. Jesus has sent us, and as sent ones, we need to just take stock. We need to survey the landscape, we need to look for ripe fruit. Every single one of us has, in our realm of experience, in our realm of relationships, people that God could be calling, that God could be preparing. And so, we need to take stock, survey, and look for the right fruit. Who, whose heart is God preparing? Who has God? Surely, God's church is moving forward. We know what the Scriptures say. And so, we need to not only take ownership, we need to look at our lives and take stock and identify whether it's him, whether it's her, whether it's them. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a foreign people group. But we need to not only take ownership, we need to take stock. And after we take stock, we need to take responsibility. Because there's a sense in which if Jesus has sent us out, if He has defined us as His sent ones, and He has prepared work for us to do, and He is preparing hearts for us to reach, then we are responsible for those hearts in some sense. But it's so easy to go out, we're going to go to church, we're going to worship, take the Lord's Supper, we're going to faithfully do all these things, right? Go through all all of our ritual, which isn't bad, which is good, which is... An exercise in obesity, so easy to do all those things, but to not take responsibility for the people that God has called us, sent us to reach. And so, we take ownership, we take stock, we take responsibility, and the last thing we do is we take action. Nike said it best, just do it. Jesus qualified it best, by faith. Just do it, by faith. Step towards that person, by faith. Have that conversation by faith. Pray for that person by faith. Look for that ripe fruit by faith. Be a sent person by faith. And if ever we are concerned or confused or discouraged or disheartened, church, we must remember that Jesus was sent first. Jesus was sent first. He was sent first, and the success of His mission guarantees for us the success of our mission. Verse 17, we're going to start speeding up now. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. The opening words of Jesus' statement here in verse 17 lead us to our second point for consideration this evening, and that is, beware, we are a suffering people beware, we are a suffering people. The warning to beware, the first word of this verse, is to also be on guard. And here, here is one that demands, to be on guard demands ceaseless vigilance. As we go out into the world, as we bring the gospel, um, we are in a continual state of clear and present danger. Again, in our context, we don't necessarily feel that it's pro- for us, our experience of clear and present danger is probably minimized in the last 2,000 years of church history. It confronts us least of all saints in the last 2,000 years of church history. But Jesus is saying that there is always clear and present danger. This was especially the case for His first disciples, and the kind of persecution, the kind of suffering that's in view here is actual physical persecution, actual physical suffering. So as we look at Matthew, the previous passage from last week, ten verses uh, 16 through 23 this week, uh, the ongoing mission that we have been called into will, will feature ministry efforts to both Jewish and Gentile peoples. Therefore, all the peoples of the earth, and so in verse 17 we see Jesus saying things characteristic of suffering in in the context of 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 ministering to to Jew, the Jewish people group, and in verse 18 he says things that are characteristic of his disciples experiencing suffering in the context of reaching uh, the, all the nations, the Gentile peoples. So in verse 17 he says, he says what he says. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. That's using Jewish language. But then in verse 18, you'll be dragged before governors and kings. And of course, we see this in the book of Acts, and we'll get to that shortly. Most of us can't relate to this kind of clear and present danger. Some of us can. I know people in this church that that can relate to this kind of clear and present danger. But most of us have experienced the security and freedom of the United States. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not presently experience our security and freedom. And these brothers and sisters can undoubtedly relate to being sheep among wolves, to being dragged before government officials and kings. I can only hope that I would stand firm should it ever come to this. These pictures were taken in February of this year on a beach in Lebanon where a group of Coptic Christians that had been captured, I think, from Syria and taken to Libya were summarily executed by the beheading with dull machetes by ISIS Islamic extremists. There is a sense in which it is very easy for me to stand up here and boldly proclaim that I would stand firm in that kind of a situation. It costs me nothing to say that right now. It costs you nothing to agree with me in this moment. I can only hope that if I were confronted with radical persecution like this, that I would maintain fidelity to Christ. As a matter of fact, I think that many of us could and should certainly I do, find an ounce or two of humility in this kind of hypothetical gut-check scenario. In the uneasiness we might, we might just feel in this moment as we put ourselves in that place and question whether or not we would remain steadfast, that uneasiness arouses deep inside of us this desire for reassurance, doesn't it? As you look at that and put yourself in that place, isn't there something deep inside of you that just wants to be reassured that you would stand, that you would maintain fidelity to Christ? And that is precisely why we can find Jesus' next words so timely and comforting. You See, He truly is the good shepherd. He knows what His sheep need and precisely when they need it. He knows how to care for us and provide for us in moments of peril. He knows we need reassurance and help. He understands our weakness and frailty. He sympathizes with us. Look with me at his comforting words in verse 19. When, not if, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Jesus makes a comforting promise he promises those disciples, and that promise, I believe, because of the context, because the context involves the ongoing mission to all peoples and nations of the earth, God, Jesus makes a, this comforting promise that, that God will give us the words and the Holy Spirit will speak to us in a moment of extreme persecution and peril like that. And that is, that is very comforting news. As a matter of fact, I've been in non-life-threatening situations Maybe a critical moment of conflict resolution or a moment where I had to, to, to share the gospel or just moments that were critical in some respect. And as I look back on and reflect on those experiences, I know for certain that the Holy Spirit just gave me the words. Because I said, I said the words, they were the right words, and I just thought, whoa, where did that come from? And family, if God is faithful to give us the words in non-threatening Non-life-threatening situations like that, how much more can He be trusted to give us the words when we face the kind of situation that those Coptic brothers faced just a few months ago on on a beach that, under other circumstances, we might vacation on on the other side of the world? In Acts chapter 4, we see this. Peter and John, before the Sanhedrin, those Jewish rulers and officials were astounded that Peter and John could articulate their faith, that they could tie Jesus to the Old Testament and speak with such authority and truth. How are these unlearned men saying these things? Similarly, in Acts chapter 25 and 26, Paul's trial before Festus and Felix. So, Jesus' words proved prophetic not that far down the line for those, those earliest disciples turned apostles. So, as we confront suffering... Jesus' comforting words should resonate in us, and we should also remember that Jesus suffered first. Jesus suffered first. And in this passage, Jesus not only warns us of the possibility of physical persecution, He also fully discloses the likelihood of of relational rejection, losing relationships with the people we love, the people that that we, are, that we are tied to in this life. Many people we love will reject Jesus, and because of our love for Him, they will summarily reject us as well. Look at verses 21 through 22. Brother will betray or deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Now, this is fascinating, because when we think of our closest relationships, and many of us are married, who do we think of? We think of our spouse, right? And so, you think, well, Jesus isn't really talking about our closest relationships, but we need to remember a few principles. That world is very different from our world, socially speaking. In the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. In the New Testament world, the, most, the, uh, the person's most important group was their blood family, Okay, and in the New Testament world, uh, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage. In the New Testament world, it was the bond between siblings. The central value that characterized ancient family relations was the obligation to demonstrate undying loyalty towards one's blood brother and sisters. So, blood relationships were the most important whether it's the blood relationship between siblings or the blood relationships between parents and children. So, as a corollary to that, and as we try to to kind of put our foot in the world in the New Testament and responsibly engage God's Word in the context in which it was written, we we would do well to remember that, that the most treacherous act of human disloyalty was not necessarily disloyalty to one's spouse in that time. It was the betrayal of one's brother. And what does Jesus say? Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And so, like, categorically speaking, the most heinous kind of relational betrayal will befall the disciples of Jesus, Jesus the followers of Jesus, you and I. And how many people have had the experience of, of meeting Jesus and then being cut off? Being Jesus, meeting Jesus, and then being ostracized by a culture or by a family. Again, we experience this minimally relative to our brothers and sisters around the world, but it happens. And as if that isn't bad enough, as, as if it isn't bad enough to first, for Jesus first to say, um, you're going to suffer first persecution, physical persecution, you're going to suffer relational rejection, He just kind of takes it to the next level. Well, I'm on it, verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my sake. Great! you be hated by all. Now, he doesn't mean every single individual, but he does mean every single group. And we can expect that in our culture, and we can expect it increasingly over the next few decades. I believe that my, I'm 35, and I've grown up in this church, and I believe that I've enjoyed an unprecedented level of peace and security as a follower of Jesus Christ in my lifetime. I don't think that our culture is trending in that direction. I think it's trending away from that direction. And I think that more and more in the coming years, we are going to be confronted with relational rejection. And that that will be the first step, the first trial that we face in, in terms of maintaining our fidelity to Christ. And, and I don't know if some point down the line in our context, in our country, we'll experience physical persecution. But certainly, Jesus' words ring true, and they're beginning to ring truer and truer for us. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. this leads to our third point today. Betrayed, we are a rejected people. We need to know up front that following Jesus means, with respect to the world, we will be a rejected people. And so, count the cost up front. But what is so sweet about this verse, just as Jesus salted His warning about physical persecution with a comforting promise, here Jesus offers a comforting promise to those who experience rejection, the second half of verse 22, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be ultimately vindicated. The one who endures to the end will be delivered. The one who endures to the end will be saved in the fullest sense. We should also be reminded that elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus provides reassurance that as believers, we will ultimately gain or inherit relationships that take the place of the ones that we lose because of this kind of relational rejection, persecution. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who is left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, we still suffer those, and we will, and in the age to come, eternal life. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved, will find eternal life, will be ultimately, finally, totally, completely, eternally vindicated. Matthew chapter 12 And stretching out His hand toward His disciples, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Here is my family, not my blood family. Here is my family. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. As we consider this this comforting assertion by Jesus that that those who follow Him will inherit brothers and sisters and mothers and etc., I couldn't help just but think about my experience growing up in this church. I look around this room tonight, I see people that, that, that have watched me grow up or that I or my family and I have developed very sweet relationships with. I see other younger brothers and sisters that I've grown up with here. And I'm so thankful that we've persevered together in this church family, stuck it out together through good times and hard times, because we are a family. And I've had this acute awareness growing up as I've gone to family functions on holidays and special occasions, and had this awareness that my own blood family felt like strangers compared to the brothers and sisters that I have close relationship with in the church. Right? I I was your best man. So, I look around around and I think, wow, what Jesus says, His words ring so true in my experience. We, we are a family. We're not a perfect family, but we're a family. And as I think about Jesus' warning about relational rejections, I also think back to, to my childhood. And um, when I was a young boy, I mean really young, as far back as I can remember, uh, my parents moved into the house that, that, that they live in now that I grew up in on a cul-de-sac in Redondo. My dad's parents were getting old, and, and they sold the house to my mom and my dad, and, and about that time, there was just a big wave of, 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 of children, and, and so we moved in that neighborhood, and then just right after us, a ton of other people moved in that neighborhood that had kids, and so I grew up in this neighborhood. There was just a bunch of young kids my age, right? And um, I was kind of the odd kid out in a sense, because we went to church, and none of the rest of them did, and I was homeschooled, and they all went to Alta Vista, But they'd all get home from school right right at 3 o'clock and we'd all just, you know, come into the street and the cul-de-sac and it was, you know, for three weeks we're playing football, for three weeks we're playing soccer, for three weeks we're playing this or that. And, And so there was just a lot of activity and the activity of the children in the neighborhood in some sense brought the families together. And so some of the neighborhood families, you know, one family would host a barbecue, invite all the other kids and their families, then another family, you know what I'm saying? Maybe some of you in your neighborhoods have experienced that dynamic. Well, one year, um, <clears throat> probably when I was in junior high, my parents decided to buy, to, because they, they recognized that we, we, we are a sent people, that we are a sent family, they just bought a copy of the Daily Bible for every family in our neighborhood. Just the Daily Bible. You can probably still get the same Daily Bible in our bookstore. And so, we gave a copy of the Daily Bible to every family um, in our neighborhood, thinking that would be a fairly non-threatening way to witness... Man, talk about being immediately ostracized. My mom went through a tremendous sense and had to live with for years in our neighborhood a tremendous sense of rejection because no longer was she being invited to go hang out with the ladies in the neighborhood when they had teas. No longer were we, you know, invited to the family, the family get-togethers. And so we experienced that. We experienced relational rejection. But you know, God proved faithful even in the midst of that. Because, like I said, we had relationships in this church that were so much more rich and deep and, and, and edifying because of the, the shared bond that we have in Christ than probably those neighborhood relationships could have been anyways. But, and so Jesus' promise was realized in our life, but also, when I was in high school, I think the summer between my junior and senior year, the family that lived next door to us, there were two girls, one a year below me, a year younger, one a year older. Well, just through my mom being a gracious but persistent uh, witness, the, the father of that family had immigrated from Iran. The mother was from South Korea, and they met in the United States in aerospace and married, had kids. Well, they were non-believers, but just through kind of a persistent witness from my parents and especially my mom, one, one day, um, the husband came to faith in Christ, converted from uh, from Islam to Christianity, and then the, the wife soon followed, and the kids, and they were baptized right here in this auditorium and, and are walking with Jesus today. And so And so even though we come up against relational rejection, even though we come up against this kind of persecution, God is redemptively at work in the midst of it. We don't know how He's going to use our witness. We just know we need to maintain our witness. Because At the end of the day, he's the author of our salvation and their salvation, whoever they are. But we need to be sensitive. We need to take ownership, right? We need to take stock. We need to take responsibility. We need to take action. And family, we must always remember, whatever may come, Jesus was rejected first. It should not surprise us when we're rejected because of him. Everything Jesus has disclosed fully so far points to this imitation theme that as a a sent, as a suffering, as a rejected people, we emulate Him in our ministry. He was sent. He was suffering. He was rejected first. And so we share in His being sent. We share in His sufferings and we, we share in His rejection when we experience the same things. He concludes this passage, this particular section of the missions discourse in verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. One commentator said this is one of the most problematic verses in the Bible to interpret because at face value, it seems like uh, Jesus might have been wrong, but He wasn't and there are explanations and those explanations are Um, take a little while to unpack, and seminary nerds like me like them, but I'm going to spare you that because of the interest of time. For the purpose of this message, I want to call your attention to one very critical piece of information that Jesus communicates in this final verse. The Son of Man will come. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus borrows from Daniel 7, and it is a title of deity. It is a title applied to God, In the Jewish mindset, only God rode the clouds. And in the Gospels, Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. You will see me coming in my full glory. And so Jesus punctuates our reality, His full disclosure, with something very hopeful. And when we look at this verse, it's time for us to remind ourselves that In this life, it's not about success, but it's about our Savior. We are after Him. We long for Him, and He is coming back for us. He commissions us and says it's a mission, and we won't necessarily finish the whole mission, but He most assuredly will. And oh, the irony, oh, the irony that the one who sends us as sheep comes as a lamb. First, a lamb that was slain, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, our Passover Lamb. Jesus calls His disciples back, back to the future. Jesus calls us in this verse to focus back to the future because He is coming back. He is coming again. But this time, this time, the Lamb is coming to conquer and to judge and to wipe out those who oppose Him, those who oppose Him to the end and those who trample on His his sheep. And so we need to remember when we need hope that Jesus is coming back to clean house, that Jesus is coming back to judge the nations. The victorious lamb is coming back as a conquering lion, and that leads us to the final point tonight. Back, back to the future, we are a hopeful people. And so we must also remember, not only was Jesus sent not only did Jesus suffer, not only was He rejected, but He's also coming back. In conclusion, I just want to say that I really labored over this passage and over this message. And I just, it, I struggled through it and I was feeling all these different things. And and this is, this is definitely a passage of, of full disclosure. Um, and as I was wrestling through it and kind of going through this experience, I had, it dawned on me, I had this realization, why am I wrestling with this? Why, why, what, is, what is the struggle preparing this message um, as I think about, you know, bringing it to the family? It dawned on me that the struggle I was experiencing was not with the difficulty of the subject, not with the difficulty of the reality of persecution and rejection and suffering, because that's a hard message, isn't it? That full disclosure is not easy disclosure, but it dawned on me that the difficulty, the dissonance that I was experiencing was related to how foreign the subject feels for most of us. And I wonder if because we don't feel the pressure, kind of the immediateness of being sheep among wolves in our day-to-day living… I wonder if maybe because we're comfortable that that in itself somehow radically endangers our mission. I know that's true for me. So I will stand up here and be the first one to take responsibility that it endangers my mission. But it shouldn't endanger any of ours our identity, our purpose, our mission should give rise in us to a kind of, of, of through vision, being able to see through this present darkness, being able to see through our present trials and tribulations and afflictions and persecutions and rejections and sufferings. Our sense of mission and purpose and identity, identity should propel us to take ownership, to take stock, to take responsibility, to take action. So the sense of identity, owning that we are sent ones, owning it, digesting it, marinating in that reality should inform our living because, in conclusion, we are a Christian people. We are a Christian people. We are called out. We are of Christ. We are owned by Him. I want to leave you with this thought. I have a friend who um, just is an incredibly gifted young scholar, um, student of God's Word. And he shared this in a message and and I called him and it was so compelling. I called him and asked him, hey, can I share this with with my family? He said, absolutely, absolutely. And he loves studying second and third century martyr texts, actual historical texts that both believing and non-believing scholars study for academic purposes, historical records, historical documents. So, he loves studying these second and third century martyr texts as, as early Christianity was unfolding the first few centuries um, after Jesus ascended. <clears throat> And he's communicated to me that there's this, there's this theme that keems, keeps coming up again and again and again and again in these martyr texts repeatedly. And it's this, this theme of, of a martyr being brought before a Roman magistrate, tortured, beaten, <clears throat> publicly shamed. And, the, and as the magistrate inquires, saying, okay, what is your name? The reply, Christiano se I'm a Christian. Okay, who's your father? Christianos Amy. I'm a Christian. All right, what do you do for a living? Christianos Amy. I am a Christian. Where are you from? Christianos Amy. I'm a Christian. Every desperate attempt to define, to label, to identify that person in terms familiar to the culture. In terms that made sense in the second century Mediterranean world, these stubborn martyrs would tear away those badges and labels or bits of identity, their qualifications and names, and they would consistently respond, Christianos, Amy, I am a Christian. And then they would die well. They would die well with joy in their hearts because they had been given a great privilege of participating in the sufferings of their risen Savior who they would shortly stand face to face with. And so, church, whatever sufferings we have ahead of us, whatever persecutions, whatever rejections, whatever trials, may we meet them with the same unshakable sense Of identity and purpose, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, longing to meet our Savior. Christianos Amy. Christianos Amy. Christianos Amy. I am a Christian. Let's pray.